A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the first episode of France Elects, a special world review podcast series on the French election from the New Statesman. I'm Ido Gok, Europe correspondent at the New Statesman, and I'm very pleased to welcome listeners to this bonus podcast series right here in the World Review podcast feed. As France enters an atypical election campaign ahead of the next vote for president in April, over the next few months, I'll be joined by some of the sharpest observers of French politics, delving deep into the big issues shaping the race to lead the EU's biggest military power and its second largest economy. Just thinking back to 2012, when almost half of the voters in the contest that year went for socialist or green candidates, and then ultimately Francois Hollande, a socialist, was elected, and now this election has nothing to see from that side and is entirely being fought on the right. From climate policy to foreign relations, who French voters choose later this year will have implications not just for Europe, but for the world. First, let's set the scene. It's May 2017. Less than a year prior, Britain had voted for Brexit. And just four months earlier, Donald Trump had taken office in the US. Right-wing populism seemed to be sweeping the Western world. But in France, Emmanuel Macron, a young former economy minister, had just beaten the far-right leader Marine Le Pen by a healthy margin in the second round of voting to become France's youngest president in history and the first for decades to come from outside the main parties of the left and right. He styled himself as a radical reformer who would free up France's economy, but also a progressive, a relaxed social liberal. Here was the first sign that populism might finally be on the back foot. C'est le monde qui nous regarde. Europe and the world are watching us. L'Europe et le monde. Europe and the world expect us to defend the spirit of the Enlightenment everywhere, under threat in so many places. Ils attendent. They expect us to defend freedom and protect the oppressed. They expect us to bring a new hope and a new humanism. Macron pursued an ambitious reformist agenda, facing down fierce opposition from opponents to his right and left, pushing forward reforms to labour laws and pensions and tax cuts. Yet in common with the rest of the world, the COVID-19 pandemic derailed his plans, forcing him to pause many of his planned reforms as he responded to the unprecedented difficulties facing him and his country. I do not think that the reform we were initially planning can be taken forward. I'll be honest. I think it was very ambitious, extremely complex, and therefore many people were anxious about it. There are several plausible candidates to challenge Macron for re-election this April. 
The fractured political scene is in part a function of his sweeping away of the two traditionally dominant parties of the left and right, the socialists and republicans, in 2017. On the far right, Macron's second round opponent, Marine Le Pen, faces a challenge from Éric Zemmour, a polemicist who on many issues is more extreme than the traditional doyenne of the far right. Valérie Bécresse was chosen by the centre-right Republicans as their first female candidate. For the first time in its history, the party of the General de Gaulle, of Georges Pompidou, of Jacques Chirac, of Nicolas Sarkozy, our political family, will have a female candidate for this presidential election. And the left is divided between as many as seven candidates, each splitting the progressive vote and making it seem ever more unlikely that a left-wing candidate will prevail. To discuss the early campaign, the candidates, and what's likely to shape the debate, I'm joined today by James McCauley, who writes a column on European affairs for the Washington Post, and was until recently based in Paris. And John Litchfield, a correspondent in Paris who writes for Politico, The Local and others. Let's start off by talking about the the Macron terms so far. So Macron was elected in 2017. He was the first president in quite a few elections to not come from one of the previously dominant two main parties. And in part, that was based on his promise to smash up the system and uh, reform France in in some pretty fundamental ways, which he did attempt to do for three years up to 2020. And then obviously we had the pandemic. So I think it probably makes sense if we want to look at the current state of affairs to talk about what Macron was trying to do initially up until the pandemic and and how that went. And then uh, we can move into how the pandemic, how he dealt with the pandemic and how that's colouring the current um, campaign. James, if I can start with you, what was Macron, how was his term looking up until 2017? And theoretically, in a counterfactual where he continues on that course up until today, and then he's running on this, on the record that he wanted to have for himself, what would what would he have done and what would be we be looking at? A very good question. So yeah, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you both. I think looking back at the beginning of the, the Macron phenomenon, I think often to the title of the book that he published in tandem with his campaign in 2017, which was, the title was revolution, or using that word. I think that in many ways, it was a revolution of sorts in the sense that here was a candidate who didn't come out of nowhere because, of course, he was in the Hollande administration, but who essentially formed his own party. And we we can talk a little bit more about that, about what Macron's sort of coalition has done to the French political ecosystem and I'd be very curious to, to hear John's views on that. But so he, he comes out of nowhere, creates his own party, which at the time was billed as neither right nor left, but a mix of both, but has essentially become a kind of center-right coalition with some social liberalism in it, maybe more than we would have seen in previous conservatives. 
and who has totally transformed the the political arena. And then in doing so, you know, Macron essentially handpicked the the deputies who then served his party in the French parliament after he was elected. It's a total reconfiguration of a system that had been up until then a kind of gentlemanly left handoff every every election. And I think that's that's key, the sort of the supermajority that Macron had for his own party in 2017. And that sort of set the scene for a lot of the ambitious reforms that he had imagined, but also a lot of the blowback to it. And I think looking now, there was so much optimism from the moment when Macron was elected, that amazing night where I, among with among many other journalists was there when he gave his victory speech at the Louvre, this amazing moment of optimism for Europe and for France, especially after the the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump in the US just a few months before. And it it, it was this sort of groundswell of pro-European, anti-nationalist sentiment. And that continued for a while because of the supermajority that Macron had in the parliament. He, not all, but in some of his initial plans did get off the ground, or at least toward the beginning. And then, I don't know, looking back at the term now, though, I, I think that we, we live in the shadow of the, the gilet jaune. I won't call it an uprising, but elongated protest. And we can talk more about that. But in short, the, the protest against the rising of carbon taxes to sort of adhere to Macron's green promises that, that angered a lot of citizens, particularly in rural France, outside of the major cities, and that became this kind of huge protest, not just about that one issue, but about so many other things. But that indeed was the gateway to a lot of the disenchantment that we have then seen with Macron since. Anyway, I'm rambling, but I think that there was, to answer your question, there was this amazing groundswell of optimism that was punctured with that moment in particular, and that we've never really quite recovered from. Certainly not since covid I think a lot of people in France, whether they like Macron or not, would probably say that the Macron that they see in 2022, the, the kind of president that he's become, as you say, Jake, possibly since the Gilets Jaunes, it was not the same as the candidate Macron. And, and John, That's right. I was wondering if you could jump in here. What do you think, how do you think his uh, presidency has evolved and he as a, as a leader has evolved coming, having relatively little experience and also positioning himself in 2017 as a pretty progressive down the middle candidate. And as Jake says, probably having governed to the center right in the view of many French people. And can you also talk about the handling of the pandemic and how that may have perhaps derailed some of his, some of his attempts to, to reform France? Yeah, I broadly agree with with James's analysis. I think that it was always a strange uh, offer on Macron's support to be a revolutionary in the centre, and in, in a sense, he never was. He, but it's now something more obvious than it was in in 2017 that Macron is a continuation rather than a revolutionary. He's an attempt to try and make the system as it's evolved over 30, 40 years in France work better. And he perhaps achieved more in doing that than, than his central centre-left predecessors who had also set out to do that did. You know, he, he did reduce the tax burden on business. He did make it easier to hire and fire. That has some effect, some good effect on the French economy. And, you know, the, the economy, French economy has recovered from the COVID pandemic 
perhaps better than almost any other industrial economy. It has a lower unemployment now than 15 years. There are also still many black spots. But I, I see Macron, in a sense, not as a revolutionary, but as someone who, who wants to make the status quo work better and survive. And, and in a sense, that's the way he's running this time. He's not running as a revolutionary. And he's able to do that partly because he has, until recently anyway, been seen, I think, by most people, certainly not by all, by many people outside France as well, to have handled what's been a very difficult pandemic for all governments. Reasonably well, made some mistakes, got some things wrong, screwing up in little ways now. But I think until a week or so, two or three weeks ago, people would have said that overall, French government has come through the pandemic reasonably well, certainly in terms of its huge its huge economic aid to, to individuals and businesses to, to keep the country on the life support during the pandemic, which in a sense they were the first country to do in a big way. And it was copied to a large extent by the British government and by other governments and has been pretty successful in France. So now he's able to offer himself not as a young revolutionary, but as a kind of safe pair of hands who, who still wants to change many things for the better. But he's not, I don't think, running this time or going to run this time, hasn't formally declared yet as a revolutionary in quite the same way. And perhaps, as, as James suggested, that is partly because his experience of being this arrogant, brash, young, rather inexperienced politician, not so much as a candidate, but as a president in the first couple of years, was a little difficult at times. And, and the Gilets jaunes protests were partly against the personality of Macron as well as what, what he did. He was seen as this president who was you know, the pointed-headed young man from the elites who'd come in rather accidentally and represented all that everyone in those parts of France, in the rural, outer suburban parts of France, hated about the system for many years. So he, he coalesced in his existence a lot of anger that had been out there for a long time. So he's trying to avoid that now. He's trying to seem more human, um, cut out and more and warm in touch with people than he was before. And he will, he hasn't actually declared his campaign yet, but I think he will run a, a very different kind of campaign this time than he ran in 2017. And essentially has to as a president rather than as a challenger. So one of the most lasting consequences of Macron's election in terms of French politics has been that, as you've both alluded to, he smashed up um, the established political system. There, there was a dominant two-party system. And I think since since the Luigi style this start, um, yeah. before Macron, there had been every president was either from the centre-right or the centre-left. And they, as you said, James, they alternated in a kind of gentlemanly fashion. And Macron came from, from, no, from, from no party and he created his own party around him, which bore his initials en marche, Emmanuel Macron. And... Um, and so one of the most lasting consequences of that is a kind of real fracturing of French politics. I think many of our listeners, those who don't follow, who might be quite well informed about French politics, but uh, don't follow French politics in that much depth, will be quite baffled by how many candidates there are and the just the sheer number and the sheer uh, variety of all the candidates. And we'll be getting into these into them individually as in, in future episodes. But I suppose we can just set the scene uh, in this sure. first episode and talk about where things stand at, at this point in the campaign. We're about two and a half months out. The election is in April. I guess it makes the most sense to start on the far right, just because we spent a very long time thinking that 
what would happen in this election would be a repeat of what happened in the last election where Macron faced off in the second round of voting with Marine Le Pen, the far-right leader, and probably the same outcome, he would beat her like he did last time. But uh, but we see really pretty s- the strongest challenge to Marine Le Pen in from her style of politics in the past year or so from Eric Zemmour, who for a while seemed like he was uh, beating her at her own game. Jake, how do things stand on the far right? What's the state of competition between Zemmour and, and Le Pen? We have, on the one hand, Marine Le Pen, who is a familiar face to all who follow European politics. She is the head of the party currently called the Rassemblement National, but that used to be called the National Front, which was for many years the most visible face of the European far right. And it was founded by her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, the kind of bete noir of the French political tradition, convicted Holocaust denier, unrepentant anti-Semite, and extremely virulent uh, xenophobe. And she has done everything in her power to try and, as the French say, to de-demonize her party, especially expunging it of her father's presence. And indeed, the two are somewhat estranged, but she's had this whole long fight of trying to make herself seem more credible and a more human face than her father. The National Front, or sorry, the, the Rassemblement National, the National Rally, it has this history. And I think anybody that has the last name Le Pen will still face a very difficult time in French politics, as um, she still seems to be in terms of her polling numbers. On the other hand, she faces a challenge. The traditional far right faces a challenge from the character of Eric Zemmour, who is fascinating because he has positions that in many ways are more extreme than those of Marine Le Pen, especially vis-a-vis immigrants and Islam. And she, who is certainly no friend to Islam or to immigrants, has made pains to distance herself even from Zemmour. But What's interesting is that Zemmour, um, he's a newspaper columnist for France's decorous daily conservative paper, The Figaro, a best-selling author who rails against national decline, which is, of course, a well-trodden tradition in French public debate. Zemmour is himself from an Algerian Jewish family. And so the way in which Marine Le Pen and the legacy of her father are often dismissed given their embrace of anti-Semitism and Holocaust denial does not necessarily stick to Eric Zemmour in the same way, even if he is also actively engaged in revising the history of the Holocaust in France, which is something of a tradition on the French far right. You know, Zemmour has said that in the Vichy government during World War II that the authorities actually tried to save French Jews, which is not true at all. He said that Pétain, who headed the Vichy government, was a hero. These are the kind of things that Jean-Marie Le Pen has said many times and that he was roundly criticized for. And Zemmour is criticized for them too, but it doesn't necessarily impugn his credibility in the way that it does the Le Pen's or has in the past. And so that is really interesting trade-off. And Zemmour has been super popular among, in a way, readers of the Figaro, sort of this bourgeois conservative elite that doesn't necessarily like the populist line that the Le Pen's have cultivated in the past and wouldn't really be comfortable voting for someone like her, largely for aesthetic reasons, if you will. But that Zemmour doesn't seem to have the polling numbers necessary to make it into the 
we'll see. I, I could be wrong, but it seems for the moment that a lot of the wind is out of his sails. And the open question is whether some of those voters that he has amassed would go over to the Le Pen side should she make it into a runoff against Macron. And I think she's hoping that will be the case, given that she has really tried to, this time, a, there's been a lot of marked shifts in her campaign compared to before. She's focused largely on things like economic inequality, given the migration of the working class to the French right, a phenomenon that we've seen elsewhere in Europe and certainly the United States. She has focused on things like fuel. And we'll see. I, I'm not sure that she automatically will get the voter base that Zemmour has brought out of the woodwork. But it is fascinating to watch. If you're enjoying France Elects, you might want to consider subscribing. We have a special offer for podcast listeners, 12 weeks for £12 or €12 Euros in Europe. Just go to newstatesman.com slash podcast offer and you can read all our international coverage at newstatesman.com slash international. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So we've got this kind of de facto primary of the far right with opposing two very different styles of politics. So you've hinted, Jake, although maybe not quite as different as both would like would like you to believe. But then one of I think one of the most kind of confusing parts of this election is just the, the plethora of candidates on the left and the fact that none of them can seem to agree on anything really, and especially not on potentially just backing 
one candidate to give the left a, a chance. And just this week, we've got this popular primary, which has the particularity of uh, not requiring candidates contesting it to actually sign up to it, which is supposed to pick a single candidate to run as the candidate of the left, although that is almost certainly not going to happen. John, what's the current state of the French left and why is it so, why does it appear so divided and disorganised and dysfunctional? Well, it's certainly disorganised and dysfunctional. And if you look at the the overall, there are eight, I think now, candidates of the left in um, contention, none of whom has more than 10% of the support in the first round on April the 10th. If you add them all together, it comes to 26 or 27%, which is compares to what was maybe 43% uh, in 2012. So it seems that a large chunk of the left has gone missing. Where are they? I think people sometimes forget that a large chunk of what used to be the centre-left, the kind of managerial left, the governing left, the pro-European left, is still with Macron. People say he's a centre-right president. In many ways, he is. But something like 30 or 40% of the left candidate, left voters who voted for him last time are still with him. A lot of the people who had previously voted, people like Hollande or Jospin or Mitterrand, are, are now with Macron. So that cuts down. The whole base of the left has been cut down. Some more of it has gone, as there has been emigrating over the years, to the far right, more to Le Pen than to Zemmour, for the reasons that James is explaining, that Le Pen appeals to a more sort of populist and, and popular and more working class base than Zemmour does. So you have a left fighting over a much smaller pie and many more people trying to tuck into it. And you have this uh, the popular primary, which was actually launched some time ago, was in the sense it was launched independently by, by activists and academics on the left who foresaw what was going to happen, that there would be far too many candidates on the left and not one people could get behind. And so they've uh, organized this completely independent uh, primary, whose only ef- effect so far has been to divide the left even more. Another candidate has come in, Christiane Doga, former justice minister, who I know I once interviewed her travel around with. She's a, she's a very admirable woman in many ways, great orator, but not, I think, someone who's going to bring the left together. And so she's been rejected by the other candidates who are in there who are doing reasonably well, like Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the candidate of the hard left, and Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, who's the socialist candidate, but only getting something like 3% of the vote. She represents the party that was the party of government in France until only five years ago, but she's getting uh, only 3% of the vote. And she and Mélenchon are on the ballot for this online independent primary at the end of this week. They say they don't want to be on that ballot. They won't accept the result of the ballot. So what will it achieve? Nothing, I think. It's a sort of well-meaning, interesting phenomenon, something like 460,000 people, it was said today, have signed up for it. If all of those vote, it will be an extraordinarily big poll. It would be like an opinion poll, really, rather than a primary. I think probably Christiane Tobra will win because she's the only well-known candidate on the ballot paper who says she accepts the, the process. But I don't think that's going to solve the problem of the left. The left will remain pretty scattered and pretty weak. The only thing that might change the equation on the left is what happened last time in 2017 was that at this stage, also the left was pretty scattered because Macron had taken a big chunk of their their vote. But then in the last six weeks or so of the campaign, the the, the left voters not wanting to leave the the final round just to the right and the centre, piled in behind the hard left candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon and rose him to about 18% of the vote. So he came pretty only just behind the leading candidates last time. 
didn't really nearly get into the first uh, second round, but he did pretty well. I think something similar will happen this time, that Mélenchon probably will rise, whatever happens in, in the popular primary, but not as far. He's done many things to annoy other people on the left in the last four or five years. I think he's even less popular than he was then. And so in the end, you'll end up with a, a maybe a sort of surge by Mélenchon, but not enough to disturb the battle for the two places in the second round, which it seems at the moment, with all the, the caution that James applied to a situation in France, which is pretty potentially quite volatile. It seems likely the second round is likely to be between Macron, who's ahead in the polls on about 25%, in the first round, and one of Le Pen or the centre-right candidate, Valérie Pécresse, who are pretty even at the moment on around 16-17%. And that really is amazing, isn't it? Just thinking back to 2012, when almost half of the voters in the contest that year went for socialist or green candidates, and then ultimately François Hollande, a socialist, was elected. And now this election has nothing to see from that side and is entirely, as John says, being fought on the right, the center and the far right. And in a country that has this sort of reputation for being a one of the most proud welfare states in the world and there's a storied leftist political and intellectual tradition, it really is quite surprising to see. Yes, yeah. and how, how do you explain that? It's, as you said earlier, it's body that Macron came in and, and re- it reshaped the political map, but did he really? In a sense, he came in and took advantage of a political map that had been torn to pieces Partly yeah. far right's emergence over the years, but partly because Alon, in a sense, is probably more responsible, if you like, for the destruction of the left, you could argue, than Macron as a, a minister in the Alon government possibly played a part in that, in the sense that Alon did campaign in 2012 very much to the left. And then uh-huh. soon came into the government, governed pretty well to the centre and to the right, which had been the pattern of left-wing governments in France for a long time. And I think that snapped something, essentially, in, in the French left-wing at that point. And the idea of following that tradition, campaigning to the left and then governing to the right, just wasn't possible anymore. And the, the Socialist Party essentially fell apart in government. And Macron uh-huh. managed to claim a large chunk of it as a candidate last time, and has held on to that chunk. So it's partly Macron's fault, if you like, but Mm. it's partly something that's been happening in French left-wing politics for all the time I've been in France, which is 25 years or so. Yeah, Yeah. and and we'll definitely be following those, the question of, of the left of the far right and also of the, of the centre right and the competition between all of those in, in future episodes. Just to wrap up very quickly, can I ask you both what you think the kind of big themes of the campaign are going to be? What are the, obviously there are things we can't predict, whether there might be, you know, conflict in, in Ukraine or things like that. But at the moment, what are the kind of big arenas shaping up to be? John, do you want to quickly answer first? Interesting, there was a, it was a big, a mega poll, 12,000 respondents for Le Monde at the weekend, which had an interesting uh, result on that, that the, by far the top issue for people in this election is not immigration or crime, the people, things that the right, far right has been banging on about, it's the cost of living and the economy. The second one is the pandemic, and the third is the future of the health service. So you have three issues there, which are not the issues on which the far right has been campaigning, should benefit Macron in the sense that the economy on the surface, he's doing reasonably well. He seems to have survived the pandemic or brought the country through the pandemic reasonably. Health service has not collapsed. But in fact, there is a, a growing anger and anxiety in France about the cost of living, about rising prices, similar seen in other European countries, sort of energy, housing, food. And that is worrying the Macron people. They believe that could 
turn out to be the big issue of the campaign, not one he has an easy answer to. The advantage he has on that is none of the other candidates seen any better than him as offering anything much more uh, attractive than him. So uh, I think that, that what seems like a very stable electoral battlefield at the moment might change as that becomes the, the big issue in the next two or three months and uh, the next couple of months. And I think Macron's going to have to find a way to address that issue of people feeling, yes, that he seems to be doing pretty well if you look at the figures, but not if you look at what's inside my purse or my wallet. So the cost of living. James? Yeah, I would agree completely with John that I, I was I actually had the same poll in mind to bring up, that these are the issues that that definitely seem to be on voters' minds. But I do think that there's a difference between what's on voters' minds and what is being discussed. And there is one, one to return either to your point of earlier of the Macron term and then to this day, the issues on people's minds. There has been this, this slew of terror attacks and that, that continued under Macron's term. Last year, there was the gruesome assassination, uh, or the, sorry, the, the beheading, I should say, of the public school teacher Samuel Paty. So I agree with John that most voters are not necessarily animated by the immigration question, but there is this lingering sense about, at least in the debate that we are seeing between Macron and certainly on the far right and hardline center right with Valérie Pécresse, about the future of national identity and this sense of anxiety. It's, it, but it, it does seem to be largely among older voters, but that is very present and it does dictate a lot of the conversation that we are seeing. So I think that the most important is certainly something that is always there and will be there this time in a big way. Zemmour himself doesn't have much of a political future, but I think really represents the degree to which that, that anxiety, that preoccupation is still there. And I think that also plays a role in the at least perceived weakness of the French left. So that's a really important theme to pay attention to as well as we watch the unfolding of the next few months. Thank you both for joining me today. It's been really good. And hopefully we can have you back as the campaign progresses. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this first episode of France Selects. Join us in two weeks' time for a discussion on foreign policy in the campaign. We'll be discussing relations with the UK after Brexit, how the different candidates view the US, Russia and China, and France's role in the world. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening, and until next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.